Thank you, Jamie. Hopefully the technology works for me because that's my biggest fear up here. And of course I got multiple technological things as well as some paper and one thing you don't know about Jamie is he likes to take the unused bulletins and the ones that are put in recycling during the week he takes and tears that piece off of all of them just because he likes to hear the sound of it so much. It's one of his, uh, <laughs> it's one of his secrets. Um, yesterday, uh, before we get into the message, yesterday I was reminded of how uh, precious marriages can be and how unusual it is for people to hit milestone wedding anniversaries. And thinking about people in Chapel Hill, we have some resources here people that have some experience in longevity in marriage. And I'm going to ask four of them to stand up. Dave and Janola Fordyce, back in the back corner back there, just recently celebrated 50 years of wedded bliss. <laughs> David and Sandy Steinmeier will be celebrating 56 years of marriage in a couple months. And then uh, Vic and Diane Anderson, who aren't here today, but they will be also celebrating 50 years of marriage in a couple months. So that's 156 years of marriage experience that we have that those of us that haven't hit that milestone yet, we can go to them for advice on what do I do when he does or she does or, you know, he or she drives me up a wall. What did you do when that happened? So... Take advantage of that experience if, uh, you know, visit with them and learn what their secret is to a long marriage. Um, for those of you online, uh, this is Communion Sunday, so you have a chance to get some uh, bread or crackers or juice to uh, be able to take with us at the end of the service and you know, join us in the, in the communion. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be going through the book of Jonah. It's a whale of a tale. Um, when I think of Jonah, I usually think of a big fish. And, uh, you know, we've got a few fish pictures up there. Hopefully you can see those. Those were caught in May. Um, they aren't anywhere as close to the state record for those fish. Uh, two of them are northern pike and one is a walleye. Um, but they were too big for us to keep because like we were fishing on has a slot limit and they had to go back in the water. The uh, you know, one thing I want to point out is that the person that's holding those fish did not catch those fish. <laughs> the, uh, the person that caught the fish wouldn't touch the fish or get close to the fish to hold them or get their photo taken. So they took the photo of the fish that they caught of somebody else holding it. So um, you can talk to that person after the service and... Um, I think the fun thing about it was we were using micro light poles because we were actually fishing for panfish, crappies and such, and catching a, a 28, 29 inch northern pike on a ultralight micro light fishing pole is quite the battle. So um, only extremely good fishermen, fisher people can uh, handle that and successfully land one of those. Jonah. Four chapters long, and I kind of like to break it out. Jonah's uh, chapter one, it's Jonah's call and his refusal to obey. Uh, chapter two, Jonah 
has reconsideration of what he's asked to do. Uh, chapter 3, he gets his second chance and he, he finally obeys God's uh, instruction to him. And in chapter 4, after he's obeyed and fulfilled his mission, he, gets pout, he pouts and gets angry with God because of the result of it. Uh, so we'll work through that. Uh, Jonah, you know, some people think that the story is fictional because of the big fish that swallows Jonah. Uh, but Jonah was a historical figure, actual person. Um, he was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, who reigned for 40 years in Israel from about 793 B.C. to um, 753 B.C. And uh, he's actually mentioned in 2 Kings. Um, yeah, we'll get to that later. Uh, Jonah is Hebrew for Jonah. We like to call it Jonah, but Yonah is his Hebrew name, and it means dove in Hebrew. Usually uh, prophets have a, a name that is some attribute of God, but in this case, Jonah is dove. He's the son of Amittai, and uh, Amittai means my truth. So Yonah, Amittai, dove, my truth. Um, so he, Dove in, in the Old Testament uh, and New Testament, we see he's kind of being a messenger. Uh, Noah used dove to bring back the branch to demonstrate that dry land was available. And uh, when uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the dove came down on him and, then, and God spoke about his uh, beloved son. So we can look at Jonah as being the dove. He's the messenger of God's truth. Um, moving along here Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings uh, speaking of Jeroboam II he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet who was from Gath Hefer so Gath Hefer was the city that Jonah was from, gath means the uh, wine press of the digging. He was also a contemporary of the uh, uh, prophets uh, Hosea and Amos. And uh, most of the prophets, when, when they're instructed by God to, to deliver a message, they obey and they go. And usually the... Uh, the prophet is instructed to arise and go and do, deliver this message, except for Jonah. He didn't, he didn't uh, follow God's uh, instruction. You know, in, in Jonah chapter 1, he said, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah did rise up, but he headed to Joppa, not to Nineveh, and he didn't just walk. You know, if he was uh, in today's world, he'd have hopped in his car and put the pedal to the metal and driven as fast as he could to Joppa. He was uh, going to Joppa to hop on a boat. He paid his fare, and uh, he was going to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Anybody know? Spain, Spain is one thought as to where Tarshish 
is. Nobody's real certain on that. Could be Sardinia. Could, somewhere in the Mediterranean, as far away as what Jonah could think to get away from God. And uh, yeah. oftentimes we think we can run away from God, but we know he's all-powerful. He's everywhere, omnipresent. Jonah was raised in, in the Jewish religion, yet he thought he could run away from God and what God wanted him to do. So he hops on this ship. It's a ship with, uh, that uh, the sailors are not Hebrew, they're not Jewish, they're Gentile. Um, but he gets, he gets on board and uh, they set sail or they start rowing away and God says that, uh, no, you're not going to do that. He hurls a windstorm at the ship such that the, uh, the mariners are so scared that they fear for their lives and the ship's going to break up. So they start tossing over the cargo. Um, and they uh, try to do everything that they can to, uh, to save themselves. And it says in Jonah that they start to pray to their own gods. You know, whether it was Poseidon or Neptune, whatever their, their god was, they were polytheistic. And uh, they start praying for their, to their gods to save them. Nothing's working. The captain of the ship, he's looking for Jonah. Jonah's down in the inside of the ship, fast asleep. Who do, else do we know that falls asleep in a storm on a boat? Yes, Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. <laughs> Absolutely. So there, there's some parallels in the story of Jonah with, with Jesus as well. So the captain goes down and he says to Jonah, what are you doing sleeping down here? He wakes him up. Arise and go pray to your God that we might be saved. And, you know, the, nothing's working for the for the crew, so they decide to cast lots. And the lot falls to Jonah to determine who's at fault for this windstorm. Because they know it's something out of the ordinary, it's not natural. And the lot falls to Jonah, so they ask him, who are you, what country are you from? And, uh, you know, wh why is this happening? So Jonah explains to them that he's a Hebrew, he's from Israel, he worships Yahweh, the Lord, who created the heavens, the earth, the waters. And they ask him, well, what should we do to you in order for this storm to stop? And Jonah says, well, throw me overboard and the waters will calm and everything will be fine. They don't want to do that. They continue to try to save themselves by rowing to shore, but to no avail. They're, God's just not going to have that happen. So finally, they, they themselves believe in Yahweh, the Lord God. And they pray to Yahweh to forgive them for what they're about to do and not to let the, you know, the blood be on them for tossing Jonah overboard. So they go ahead and they toss Jonah overboard and uh, the sea's calm. And these sailors, these Gentile sailors, now are believers in Yahweh, the Lord, they offer sacrifice to Yahweh, and they make vows to Yahweh. So all of a sudden you have this unexpected Gentile group moving from their culture to the kingdom. And uh, 
you know, we, uh, we look at what uh, the difference between the Gentile sailors and Jonah, and, you know, each sailor calls out to their God, and the captain has to wake Jonah up to call out to his God. The sailors attempt to save Jonah. Jonah's fleeing lest the lives of Gentiles in Nineveh be saved. The sailors fear the Lord. Jonah claims that he fears the Lord, but he doesn't act like he does. And the sailors offer sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. Jonah promises to offer sacrifice, and we're never told that he actually does carry that out. So we, we don't know if that's actually took place or not. So what do we get from the first chapter of Jonah on uh, spiritual growth indicators? Growth indicator number one is that uh, a life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God and not away from him. Growth indicator number two, a life that is growing spiritually shows a consistency between words and works. So do your words match your actions. Jonah said he believed in the Lord, yet he didn't obey the Lord and he ran to get away from him. And the third growth indicator in chapter one is a life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believers, not to the non-believing world, not the other way around. So Jonah is tossed overboard. And God appoints a giant big fish to swallow Jonah up. Now there's all kinds of debate on what that might have been. Could it have been a blue whale? Was it a big shark? Um, nobody really knows. Maybe it was a fish that God just created specifically for that situation. But Jonah gets swallowed up and he's in the belly of this fish for a while. And he has a chance to kind of rethink what, what's happened. In the second chapter of Jonah, Jonah creates a psalm of thanksgiving because God has saved him from drowning in the deep. Um, he, but he, he doesn't create this just off, off the cuff. He's, he's well versed in the word in the Old Testament and the Psalms. So he's picking verses from different Psalms and creating the Psalm of Thanksgiving that he utters. Um, but it, at no point does he ever really indicate that he has repented of his disobedience. But he's thankful that God has saved him. So the, uh, after this Psalm of Thanksgiving, God instructs the fish to uh, bring Jonah up to the shore and let him walk out. Well, actually, he says, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So if you've ever had food poisoning or been really sick in the stomach and you head for the bowl, and this was Jonah being projectile vomited out onto land. He, he gave the fish a really bad upset stomach. Um, you know, that's pretty much what I have to, to say on, on chapter two, but there's you know, 
some growth indicators in chapter 2. Um, a life that is growing spiritually acknowledges and responds to the grace of God. Jonah was very thankful that God sent this big fish, even though it swallowed him, but it saved him from drowning. Growth indicator number five is a life that is growing spiritually knows and applies the word of God. Jonah knew the word of God and he used that to create his psalm of thanksgiving. And growth indicator number six, a life that is growing spiritually confesses sin, not just pious words of religiosity. That's where Jonah, at least in this story, falls a little short. He, he's thankful, but he doesn't actually describe that he's sorry for his disobedience, that he's repenting of, his, of the disobedience. So in chapter 3, God gives Jonah his second chance, and again he comes to, to Jonah and uh, says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. Give it the message that uh, I tell you. So Jonah did obey this time. He arose and he went to Nineveh. And just to give you an idea of what Nineveh looks like, that's an outline of the city. It's uh, the walls out here. That's seven miles around. The walls were 52 feet tall and 48 feet wide, so almost as wide as they were tall. And uh, you, could, you could have some races up on top of that wall. Um, and this is just the, the city within the wall. There was a lot of development, housing, maybe some businesses and stuff outside of the wall, because it tells us that it was a three days walk to get in, into the center of the city. And in Muslim tradition, they say that this tell, which is a, a ruins mound, is where Jonah, the prophet, is built, is buried, right up in this area, in the arsenal of Ersahaddon. So, you know, Jonah maybe never left. He, he uh, might, have, uh, might have actually been buried there. But it was a big, big city, and, and uh, it says that Jonah walked one day's journey into the city and started to deliver the message that the Lord God had given him. Saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the uh, word used for overthrown is hapach in Hebrew. And hapach is used in the description of Moses throwing down his staff and it turns into the snake or when the Nile River changed from water to blood. So it means turn, change. But hapach was also the term used when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So which hapach do you think jo uh, Jonah was hoping that God was going to do to Nineveh? Probably not turn it into a snake. I think he was hoping God was going to destroy Nineveh just like Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But contrary to what Jonah was hoping for, the Ninevites repented of their sin, of their brutality, of, of the way that they lived. And uh, 
It said, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And in verse 6, the people of Nineveh, the heading is the people of Nineveh repent, so it's kind of, verses 5, it's kind of, this is what happens, and then get into a little more detail in, in verse 6 as to how it took place. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The uh, king arising from his throne at that time, that meant that was, he was serious. This was serious business when he get up, gets up off the throne. And the king taking off his robe is a symbol of submission. And he put on sackcloth, which is a symbol of repentance. And sitting in ashes is a symbol of destitution. So they took this message to heart from the king on down to the ordinary person. And the king of Nineveh issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that, he may not, that we may not perish. And when God saw this, they did. And they did how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In this section of scripture, they're referring to God as Elohim rather than Yahweh. So there's some commentators, some Bible scholars that say, well, they really didn't truly repent because they used the term Elohim. But uh, God did relent from what he, he was potentially planning to do. Um, and Jesus in Matthew has, um, has commentary on, on whether or not they repented. In chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, Jesus is saying, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart, in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up on the judgment with this gener generation and condemn it, for they repented of, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater is here than, than Jonah. So we know that they actually repented because Jesus refers to it and those people in Nineveh will actually be involved in the uh, judgment of, of that generation. So out of chapter three, we get three more growth indicators. 
a life that is growing spiritually responds to God in total and complete obedience, as we saw with the Ninevites. Growth indicator number eight, a life that is growing spiritually responds to God in humility, not arrogance and pride. And growth indicator number nine, a life that is growing spiritually loves the unlovely and pursues them. The Ninevites were unlovely to Jonah, and he did not want to go to them. But God loved them. He saw them as people in it, you know, created in his own image and gave them a chance uh, for repentance. In chapter 4, we find out that Jonah's not too happy with what God's done. I don't know if he thinks if he pouts and gets angry if God's going to change his mind, but he goes outside the city and sits down. He's still waiting, hoping that God's going to judge Nineveh. And uh, he constructs a little shelter to protect himself from the sun. God causes a, a plant to grow up and provide shade for him, which Jonah is thankful for. But then a worm comes along and destroys the shade. And now Jonah's mad because the shade's gone and he's hot and thirsty and he's just upset. He's fuming. God, why did you do this? You should have destroyed Nineveh. That's what I wanted you to do. And uh, in Jonah 4, it's verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, this was a conversation that we weren't privy to in chapter 1. We find out now that Jonah was arguing, he was discussing, he was trying to uh, reason with God about this request to go to Nineveh because he knew God was merciful and gracious. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Have you ever felt like, you know, if that person ever came to Christ, why would I want to live? I don't know. Why, why would Jonah get angry about this? This is, um, you know, it's, it's hard, to, hard to imagine why, you know, that you, that you would be so upset that this group of people came to Christ um, that you wanted to die. And the Lord said, do you do, you do well to be angry? And, you know, He's going over this with Jonah, trying to get Jonah to change his way of thinking. And, and then after the plant dies again, he asks Jonah again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now that's a, a you know, was it just 120,000 people that lived in Nineveh? Or some, some scholars say, well, 120,000 people that don't know their left from their right, those were the children. So there, there might have been a larger population within the city of Nineveh. And he says, and also much cattle. 
I don't know why he throws that in there. <laughs> yeah, we got 120,000 people and much cattle. Uh, but that was Jonah and, and God reasoning and trying to, you know, get Jonah to see that this was, was fine and dandy that uh, the Ninevites repented. From chapter 4, we have uh, three more growth indicators of spiritual life. A life that is growing spiritually, strives to love as God loves. A life that is growing spiritually, evaluates one's heart and removes that which hinders service or perspective. And for my final point, Amen. got it. Almost over. <laughs> Growth indicator number 12, a life that is growing spiritually is concerned about people, not things. I, uh, you know, I think I've, I've had occasion in my life where I've uh, had uh, God inspire me, push me, direct me to do something. And one time that I recall was when I was working in downtown Minneapolis. A co-worker and I would walk the Skyway system at lunchtime to get a little exercise in. and We had a little bet going on who would lose the most weight too. So. Um, but one day we're in the Skyway system and I see this young woman walking towards us. It's in the winter time, so she's probably in the Skyway trying to stay warm. She's got a tattered winter coat snow boots on that are held together with duct tape. And I felt God prompt me to give her some money. And I walked by. She wasn't begging. She wasn't panhandling. She was just walking in the Skyway system. And I ignored that. And I had such guilt afterwards. Well, the next day in the exact same spot, she was walking again. And I took my wallet out and I gave her some money. I said, God wants you to have this. And one more day, the next following day again, same spot in the skyway. I took my wallet out again and I gave her some more money. That was the last time I ever saw her in the skyway. You know, like three days in a row, you see that person. And then never again after that. So I don't know if the, the money was enough to, to get her a bus ticket to get her to warmer climate or get into a, a shelter or I don't know what happened other than maybe she just got tired of seeing this creepy guy in the skyway system handing out money to her or something but you know if, if you feel God prompting you to do something and, and you don't follow through on that um, you know a big fish you might probably not going to get tossed overboard you're not going to get swallowed up by a big fish but your conscience is going to going to work on you and, until you do respond and and, and um, yeah, do what God is prompting you to do. This morning we have time and opportunity to uh, participate in communion. Uh, the worship team will be playing through three songs. And uh, as the three songs are playing, those of you that are in the chairs can come up to the front, take the elements, go back to your seat or up to the front, wherever, go to the back and take the elements as you wish. Those at the tables, the elements are there on the table and you can disperse those around uh, to the people at your table. Uh, we practice open communion 
at Chapel Hill, meaning that if you have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, uh, we invite you to take communion with us. Uh, parents, you know where your children's hearts are at on this. So we you know, leave that to your discretion. So um, I'll pray for, for communion, and, and then the worship team will lead us in three songs. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to remember you in the sacrifice that you gave in your only son uh, to die on the cross, that you gave us the sacrament of communion to remember that. We ask, Heavenly Father, that uh, we would take uh, a moment now to uh, reflect on this, uh, confess our sins that we may have that might be hindering us in, in our taking of communion. And uh, Lord, we just uh, pray that you go with us throughout the rest of this day. May we be open to your promptings and, and uh, respond to your call on our life. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.